0: Amen. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 11 to 18 this morning, really capping off a, a long section that's taken us most of the last two or three months to get through. This is the passage we come to this morning. It's been called by some the, the climax of the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and, you're just going to have to pardon me while I geek out for a minute over how awesome this passage is. One of the, if, you're, if you're into like literary scholarship and you like the way that authors bring all kinds of things together, then you're in for a treat this morning because the guy who wrote this letter was a genius. And he has been all along, he has been, he has been alluding to things he was going to come to later. He has been tying up things that he's already come to. He's, he's been building what is, what is an incredible work of art in this letter. And today we get the best example of that uh, in the entire book. This passage, these few verses, bring together some of the themes from the last several chapters. What you may not realize is that we, we started a section that we're tying up today all the way back in chapter 5. It's a section that started out by thinking about Jesus as this priest who's never, never been matched before in all of Israel's history. A priest that was looked ahead to in Psalm 110 as, as this, this priest who had come according to the mysterious order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 got into the nitty-gritty of what that promise meant. Then we, then we were taken to the promises of the new covenant, to Jeremiah, from Psalm 110 to Jeremiah 31, the passage we read a minute ago as we celebrated communion. We were pointed to that passage to show that that this priest, after the order of Melchizedek, well, he's the one who gets to establish the covenant God had been promising to establish. A covenant is just some terms for a relationship, and this one has more to offer than any other covenant, any other any other version of this covenant uh, ever could come close to offering it offers a relationship that is healed that is that is no longer torn apart by the problem of human sin that's the covenant that Jesus gets to offer as the priest after the order of Melchizedek that's what we saw in chapter 8 and then what we've spent the last month month and a half on is is the the accomplishment of Jesus that makes it possible for him to to, to write this new covenant for us and to serve as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We've been talking about this sacrifice, not offered by Jesus, but of Jesus. He gave himself as a sacrifice that was so perfect and so complete and never had to be offered again. And it completely got rid of the problem of human sin so that now this covenant is possible and now it's possible for us to have a priest forever because his job is done once and for all. That's been the, those are the themes that we've been tracing out and they all come back in this one. It reminds me of the way some classical music pieces work where like a symphony for instance that may have several movements and how a lot of times the last movement will bring back themes from the earlier movements and just sort of hint at them, allude to them that's what this passage does for those of you who don't like classical music, I'm sorry that you don't, for one. Your life would be richer if you did, but, uh, but here's, here's maybe another example that you'll connect with better. Any Seinfeld fans out there? You know, one of the trademarks of Seinfeld is that a lot of times you've got two or three different themes going through the episode, but somehow, especially after they hit their stride in like season three or four, somehow they always bring them back together in that last scene, and, 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 and they converge perfectly and beautifully. It's sheer genius. And that's exactly what we have In verses 11 to 18 of of Hebrews 10, what we have here, what we have here is a picture of Jesus sitting at God's right hand, waiting on his enemies to become his footstool. And what we have here is a pointing ahead to all the ways in which this dramatic, climactic truth works itself into us to change us. What we want to do today is try to camp out on the two images that our author gives us in these verses for what Jesus has done, for a work that he's accomplished once and for all, never again, to be done. We want to camp out on those images to really savor them, to get a taste for this. And then we want to look ahead, to the next verses in our, in our section, to what's coming really from the second half of chapter 10 all the way to the end is very practical. It's a section of the letter where he's trying to say, because Jesus has done this work, and because it's done once and for all, never to, be, never to be repeated, this is what your life will look like if you really own that. If you let that be your sort of DNA that works itself out in your growth as a Christian, then here's what it will look like. Here's the result. What we want to do today is camp out on these two images for the completed nature of Jesus' work, and then we want to, we want to point ahead to what's coming to see how this work that Jesus has done once and for all begins to change us just as the new covenant promised it would. That's where we're headed. Now, if you found the passage, Hebrews 10, verse 11, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while we read together? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. The first couple of verses of our passage this morning give us two images here at the climax of the letter that are really a great set of handles for us in latching on to what the whole letter has been about so far. If we can get these images, and get them burned into our mind and see the beauty that's in them, then we'll have a great hold on what the whole letter's wanted to accomplish for us. Those two images are Jesus sitting down and Jesus Waiting. For his footstool. Hebrews, what we've been saying all along, is that Hebrews is like this one really long compare and contrast paper, just like the ones you had to do in high school. That it's, it's his, this author taking Jesus, holding him up to all these other things, especially the things that his friends were more likely to want to go to instead of Jesus, to, to replace Jesus with, and showing time and time again how Jesus always weighs more. He's always better He's the only one who can provide what we really need. So I guess it's fitting that this this end, this last section of the major theology section in the letter, would tie up with yet another comparison. And here the comparison is pretty simple. It's a comparison between the priests under the Old Testament system. The priests who were known as the Levites and what they did at the temple versus Jesus and what he's done once for all in the presence of God. At the heart of this comparison Is an image of the physical posture of these priests versus Jesus. That the priests, verse 11, says they stand every day. Jesus, verse 12, sat down at the right hand of God. And then there are participles that help us understand these verbs. You guys know what a participle is? participle, like a verbal noun, helps you understand the the nature of the verb. I told you I was going to be geeking out over this passage. Sorry, you were warned. There's these, there's these verbs that describe the priest's action. They're standing. Jesus' action, He sat down once and for all. And while they're standing, the priests are offering things every single day. And while Jesus is sitting, Jesus is just waiting. In those two things, in those two comparisons, we have the key to everything that he's been trying to tell us in the last several chapters. I'm going to take them each at a, t- at a time. So what does it mean that Jesus is sitting? And what does it mean that Jesus is waiting? So Jesus sits. It was no random feature in the Old Covenant that its priests were made to stand in the sanctuary of the temple. That's not just our author to this letter making a a random observation of something he saw on his trip to Jerusalem when he happened to bop into the temple. No, it it was written that way in the law. They stood. One of the main reasons is that the temple was not a place of rest. You couldn't get comfortable in there. People died in there. Sin was such a significant and unsolved problem that if the priests went into the temple on the wrong terms, if they didn't go in carefully, exactly as it was meant for them to go in, they would be struck down because the presence of God was not a safe place for them. More importantly, they didn't stand because their work, they didn't sit, they stood because their work just wasn't done. The text makes it clear that they had to do this every single day they offered repeatedly the same sacrifices because they just couldn't take away sin. It just couldn't get the job done. This image of, of standing as a symptom of their work being unfinished, I think that would probably land better on us if so many of us didn't live sedentary lifestyles, you know, in our work environments, right? So a good hard day's work for me is like 12 hours sitting in my chair staring at my computer screen. I mean, even a hundred years ago, it wasn't like this, and most people were working on farms or on factory lines or something. Probably the, those of you who have the best sense of what it is to be standing at work, or those of you who work in the hospital or who stay at home with your kids, you, you don't get to sit down, and that's that's a lot more what like like what uh, what this image is meant to to evoke from us. I think maybe we're getting back to it, though. I've heard that you can get these desks at IKEA where you're. Your computer stuff is, is like chest high and you just stand up all day typing at your computer. So maybe, maybe we're getting back to where this image could really drive in on us. The point is, don't, let it, don't, don't, don't miss this. Standing meant work. It meant that it wasn't done. It meant that they couldn't rest. Because sin was still a problem that was waiting to be solved. But verse 12 says that Jesus made a single offering for sin that's effective for all time having made that offering, verse 12 says, he sat down. I think the, the point of this image should be clear enough by now. It's like the first day of an overdue vacation. That first time you plop down on the beach, right? It's like just after you've turned in your last paper for the semester, or maybe the last you've graded the last paper for the semester, and you plop down in front of a good movie, it's, it's the sitting down after you've got the kids in bed and you just plop down on the couch with a book or with your spouse or just to sort of stare at the wall until sleep washes over you. It's a symbol of completion. To sit down is to be finished. Jesus sat down once and for all. The other image we're given here, what Jesus is doing while he's sitting down is that he's waiting. He's waiting don't miss the beauty in this image the priests while standing are having to make offerings over and over and over again every day every year each offering a reminder that sin is not taken care of that it still hangs over us like a dark cloud jesus work is done so when he sits down all he does is kick his feet up and wait what does it mean what is he waiting for we said this before, and I'll say it again here. He sat down because he's finished dealing with sin. His death was such a perfect sacrifice, so perfectly suited to the weight of sin that it wiped it clean once and for all. All that's left for him to do is to enjoy the fruits of his victory. And he's still waiting on some of those. his death, Jesus' death and his resurrection, it, it didn't just mean the removal and the forgiveness of our individual sins. It did mean that. It started there. It washes each of us who trust in him clean from all trace of our rebellion against God. But it had bigger effects than that. Jesus' resurrection is like a down payment on a new world that God is even now making. What it, what it did was overthrow once and for all the whole insurgency that our sins made possible. It, it, it promises the defeat of everything that rebels against God's good and perfect creation. So it means the overthrow not just of our personal sins and our guilt. It means, it means the overthrow of death that waits for all of us like another one of those dark clouds. It means, it means the end to all injustice. It means the end to all natural evil and, 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 and natural disasters like we've seen so vividly in, in the past couple years. These things are evidence of an insurgency against God's good creation. And they are dead in the water because Jesus lives again. All that's left is to wait for them to come to heal. The point of this text, the point of this image of Jesus as, as one who's waiting, is not to, it's not to minimize the, the real pain and suffering that's left in the world. We do live in between his first coming and his second coming, subject to all kinds of evil that we cause ourselves and that other people cause against us, stuff that's out of our control. And, and that, this text is not to minimize that. In fact, Hebrews is all about what it looks like to live with faith, when your faith is challenged by people who want you dead. The author was profoundly aware that the world we live in is not an ideal world, okay? The point, though, is that even the worst of things that we experience here, when put on the scale against what Jesus' death and resurrection means for the world, they are nothing. They are like gnats buzzing around his ear. He has defeated them already and is waiting now only on them to... to, to be propped up under his feet like an ottoman. He's like, it, it, evil in, in this world in which Jesus lives again, Evil's like a snake that's had its head cut off, but its body just continues to move for a while. It's like a wasp that gets crushed but still has a stinger that can still get you at least one more time. Even better, here's another analogy. Evil in this world is a lot like Japanese holdouts after World War II. Anybody know about these guys? Japanese holdouts. You ever read about these guys? So the Japanese in the the era of World War II had a very, very strong honor code that governed their lives. That you you owed your life to emperor and empire. And the, the worst thing you could do, worse than death, would be to surrender. To sacrifice that that you owe. So, it was a big army. They were scattered out all over the the Pacific Islands. Some of them in very remote places in jungles, and they'd been given their orders, right? And they had this code written into their bones. And so, when the surrender happens in 1945, a lot of them don't get the word. And a lot of them, even if they get the word, they think that they think that they're being deceived. That it's some trick by the Americans trying to get them to surrender when the war is not really over. And did you know that there were holdouts on some of these islands as late as the mid 1970s? Who were unwilling to surrender because they refused, either had not heard, or they refused to believe that the war was over. The one, the last one to come in, or at least one of the last ones that, that got notoriety, was a guy named um, uh, Hiru Onada, I'm probably mispronouncing it. He was he was stuck on this island in the Philippines, living like a guerrilla lifestyle, making raids into these Filipino villages and 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 killing people. And he was doing this until 1974. He did this in spite of the fact that, that people knew he was out there and they kept dropping leaflets over him trying to tell him, hey, the war's over, dude, come on back in. And he, he said there was mistakes in the leaflets, so he just assumed they were written by the Americans trying to get him to surrender because they were worried about him. In reality, though, in reality, that was a defeated enemy, right? I guarantee you that General Douglas MacArthur was not worried about Heru Onata on this island in the Philippines. General MacArthur was just waiting. General MacArthur had kicked his feet up by this time. Now, that enemy was out there. He was still alive, so to speak. He was still, in his own mind, fighting this war that he thought was not a lost cause. But do you think that MacArthur was worried about him? Do you think that Harry Truman lost any sleep over these holdouts? He didn't because he knew that his victory was won. that's where jesus sits now as he sits having fully and completely taken care of the problem of human sin he is no more concerned about the effects the lingering effects of evil than macarthur was concerned about the japanese holdouts on the philippine islands this is not to minimize the power of evil in this world and the suffering that we are all still subject to Jesus knows the power of that better than we could. He gave himself over to it. It's to say that the battle is over. Even if the effects haven't yet fully been realized. And Jesus is not worried. So, if this is the work that Jesus has finished for us, if he has sat down because it's all done, and if he's just waiting on the enemies that are still out there to come to heal? Well, that's a truth. That is an identity marker that shapes everything about us if we truly own up to it. It's meant to renovate our hearts, to make us pure. Verse 14 starts a transition into looking at what Jesus has, how what Jesus has done for us actually starts to change us. Verse 14 summarizes as well as, as I've seen. It says, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you get that tension in that verse? It's a single offering. It's once for all. By a single offering, he has already perfected once and for all those who are being sanctified, ongoing. There's a tension here between something already done and set in stone, Jesus sitting down, and us not yet being holy like we were meant to be. Being still sanctified and perfected over time. How do we live in that tension? How do we, how do we negotiate this? And the answer that our text gives us is that the, the, it's what is true of us, set in stone once and for all because of Jesus' death, that actually makes us holy. The, the truth of who we are in him, that identity, if we latch onto it, actually is the engine that makes us holy, that sanctifies us over time. This is, I think, the point of this proof text. So, verse fourteen sets us up. This is this is where this is the tension. The rest of the letter lives in that Jesus has done this once and for all, and now He's making us holy by it. Verse fifteen to eighteen are the proof texts. He goes back to Jeremiah thirty-one. He says Jeremiah thirty-one basically said as much. You are going to be changed. You are going to know the Lord. You are going to have His law written on your heart, so that you you start to want what He wants. Then. The next promise is the foundation for that change. That your sins are going to be forgiven. God's not going to even remember them anymore. And that right there is what unlocks the change that's promised. The, the, the coming to love what God loves. It's getting rid of the sin that separated us from Him that gives us a relationship with Him, access to Him. And it's through that access to Him, through coming to know Him more and to love Him more, that we begin to love what He loves. Do you see the, process, the progress there? Once and for all, sin taken care of. That unlocks a relationship with God. And a relationship with God drives us to be more and more like him, to love what he loves, to have his laws written on our hearts and minds. That's the progress of his proof text from Jeremiah 31. What I, the the trickle-down implications of this touch everything about our lives as Christians, and we're going to get into a lot of them in the next few weeks together. What I want to do today is stay on a high level and think especially about these two images we've been given, of Jesus sitting and Jesus waiting. And ask, how would, how would these images, if we were to really lock onto them, if we were to own up to them, how would they begin to change us? How would they renovate our hearts, what we love, and begin to make us more like Jesus? Here's another way of putting it, and this is the way I put it in your outline. A way of, of, thinking, of thinking critically about our own lives I think one way to ask the question is, is, is your Savior's work finished? Does your life look like you belong to a Savior who's sitting down, who's done once and for all? I want to help us try to think through this, see if we can, see if we can dredge it up. I think here, here's, here's the thing. I think that if, if we latch on to the image of Jesus as sitting for us, it helps to renovate our hearts of pride on the one hand and guilt on the other hand. It helps to purge us from the performance mentality that we're all driven by. And to connect with the idea of a, of a Jesus, a Savior who's waiting, renovates our hearts from fear and anxiety. To connect with a Jesus who's, at, who's sitting down because his work is done renovates our hearts from the opposite ends of our performance mentality. Pride thinking we've done well, guilt at thinking we fail, failed. And to connect with a Jesus who's waiting for his enemies to come to heal because they're defeated once and for all, to connect with that renovates our hearts from, from fear and anxiety. Those are the, that's where I want to camp for the rest of our time this morning. So, performance. The fact that Jesus is sitting down, That he's finished doing everything that needed to be done for us to be whole and complete and redeemed. That's meant to undermine what comes most natural for us. What comes most natural for us is that we stand or fall based on how we perform. That God and other people think about us either positively or negatively based on how we perform. And that leads us either into pride, thinking that we have done good, or into guilt, thinking that we have failed coming to grips with what Jesus has done, that he has completely filled any lack that's in us. That's not an easy thing, but it's a life-changing thing because ultimately most of us live like our Savior isn't seated, as if there's still some lack that we've got to make up. Our performance mentality is driven by a sense that there's something undone in our lives or something we've got to compensate for in our lives. That's our responsibility. It's what drives us and gives us a sense of urgency. It's what always keeps us from feeling like we've done enough. It's also just written in some of our most basic stereotypes that you perform in one area to make up for something that's lacking in some other area, right? Isn't that what's behind the nerd versus jock stereotype that we all are familiar with? Right? That the the nerds have to be really, really good at World of Warcraft or whatever. They have to be the ones who are out there in Ellington Park with their medieval gear on fighting swords. Have you guys seen these people? <laughs> Am I the only one who's seen this on Sunday afternoons? In Elling- i got like two or three other people. The nerds have to be that; have to be good at that, have mastered that world because they're not good at the world of sports, right, that other people seem to value. And jocks have to stay really good at sports because typically they're letting everything else go, right? Well, that's the stereotype anyway. It's behind the, the hot chick versus smart chick stereotype that makes it into so many of our movies, right? You have to be really, really smart because you're just not hot. Or you have to stay really hot because you're you're just not going to be smart. You dr- it's, it's the fuel. This performance mentality that you've got to make up for something that's, that's a deficit in you is a fuel behind all of this energy and all of the, the comparisons that we make with, of ourselves and other people. Let's make it even more real. This sense of deficit as if Jesus hasn't done everything that's necessary. Isn't that the sense of, of deficit that drives our own sort of professional all of life activity think about the, the stay-at-home parent in a culture where career productivity is everything isn't that parent likely to feel like they've got to be hitting it out of the park with perfect kids and perfectly organized homes and lots of hours volunteering just to compensate for the fact that they they don't have a career in the eyes of the world or I'll give myself an example I'm a classic case of comp- of compensation i 'm pretty much not good at anything, and any of you know that know that i've i 've kind of put my eggs in one basket from the time I was like twelve years old i 've always been driven to be a good academic, or even now to be a good preacher because i 've got nothing else to offer i don 't speak any other languages i don 't play any instruments i 'm not athletic at all i 'm pretty good at fantasy football, but that 's about the extent of it. I've got nothing other than this, this one sort of pursuit that I've always been on, and I've been driven on that, for good or ill, to pride or to guilt and failure, because I know I've got to compensate for a, for a complete lack of well-roundedness, right? This same kind of mentality works its way into our morality as well. I recently read a really enlightening article in the New York Times by a guy named David Brooks, who's he, was, he writes about American culture and morality and ethics, and he was summarizing in another book, uh, and I can't remember the title of the book that he was summarizing, but it was this fascinating study on how we're basically all moral compensators, how we, we 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 think of ourselves as moral in one way to make up for another way in which we've been fudging, right? So, for example, here's one of the experiments. They, they, they did this experiment in a college dorm like a common area of a college dorm where they would put like a, a, a coke and a dollar next to each other and people always took the coke but left the dollar right? because they probably justified to themselves that they were a good person they would never steal money but they were, they were fine to take the coke because somehow that was a little bit less than stealing they, they did well in one area to compensate for taking this coke here's another example they monitored taxi cab drivers, and noticed that they were that they would that they were almost never likely to rip off someone who was blind, and take like a longer route around the city or whatever, or or jack the rate up. But that they did that kind of thing all the time to people who could see, because if you could see and you're not smart enough to track it down, then that's on you, right? That was the that was the way they justified it. That, that they they compensated for ripping off people who could see by, oh, I would never rip off someone who's blind. And ultimately, I think a lot of our moral energy is driven this way, to compensate for the fact that we know we haven't been who we need to be over here, so we we have to make up for it over here. And the message of Hebrews, the whole point of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system is that you can't compensate for your failure. That ship has sailed once and for all. I think that the the perspective of the Bible is that our sin is so severe that this, this lack of faithfulness to the one for whom we were made, this rebellion against our whole purpose for being human, that lack there is at the heart or the root of all other perceived lacks in our abilities or performance or appearance or whatever that we spend our lives trying to compensate not just for the things we would, we would admit to, but for this deeper sense that we have been untrue to our maker. And if that's true, there's just nothing we can do about it. We're stuck permanently in a, at a deficit unless our maker himself steps into that deficit to bridge it for us. The beautiful message of Hebrews from beginning to end is that Jesus has died once and for all. And that in that single, once-for-all time, perfect sacrifice, we have been made perfect and whole once and for all. There is no lack to be made up for. There is no performance standard to be met. This makes us whole. If your Savior is seated then you will live from that place. Tethered to him, you will not give in to pride because you will know that what it took for you to be okay was the life of God himself. Somehow, in the mystery that is the incarnation and the cross, God hung there for you. And that's how bad off you are. There's no place for pride here. But it also frees us from guilt. It frees us from the sense that we've never done enough, that we've got to be good at you fill in the blank for your own life because... There's this lack that's got to be filled up. Well, ultimately the lack is way worse than you ever thought it was. But Jesus is good enough. He has filled it. So you get to rest. And it's this truth. It is this truth tethered to a Savior who is sitting down that frees us up to obey Him not from fear or from guilt or shame but from love and joy and gratitude. That's the message. That's what your life will begin to look like if your Savior is seated And you're connecting with that truth. If your Savior is waiting, if your Savior is just waiting for all of the things that rebel against his rule to come to heal, and if all of those things have been defeated already, once and for all, by his sacrifice, if you can latch onto this, then it sets you free from fear and from anxiety. Isn't it true that our anxiety for the future is driven by a fear of things that are outside of our control? Things that we know we can't perform our way out of? Things that we can't predict, we can't see? We all know from experience that this world is full of things that, that we, we don't want to happen to us but can't keep from happening to us. It's full of suffering and sorrow and sickness and want. All of us want to live in a world where we don't have to worry about those things. But because they're out of our control, we fear. Beautiful truth of this text is that Jesus isn't worried. Jesus is not afraid. Jesus is just waiting on his ottoman. I love so many of the passages in the Bible that speak to us against anxiety and fear that remind us of the Father that we have who loves to give us what we need. I love the image of the shepherd from Psalm 23 who leads us beside still waters and restores our souls. I love the image that Jesus gives us of the clothier of the lilies and the fields and how if he would clothe them, if he would, if he would take care of a sparrow, how would he not also give you everything that you need? I love the promises of Romans 8 that God has given us his Son how will he not also with him freely give us all things? But I fear that maybe we don't get as much mileage as we could have could out of this image of Jesus simply waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Not fighting a battle with them. Not an ongoing war that's up in the air whose, whose, whose results are unknown. Jesus waiting on a victory that's already been accomplished. If we were to connect with that, think of the deliverance. All, all major religions, even the secular ones, have some sense of how evil relates to good. You know, in, the, in the, the Eastern way of thinking, it's often a sort of toss-up, a dualism, two very strong powers that are constantly at a war that will never end. In Star Wars, the force has a dark side and a light side, right? In secular philosophy, evil is very natural. There is nothing more natural in this world than killing the weak to establish yourself. message of the Bible is that the relationship of evil to the, to the good that's in the world is the relationship of imposter to king. It's the relationship now on this side of Jesus' resurrection of once and for all victorious king and defeated enemy who's got nothing left. If that's true, we've got to take our cue for looking at the world from Jesus, from how he looks at the world. You know, it's, it's kind of an axiom of parenting that children feed off of the emotions of their parents, that they feel fear when their parents are afraid, that they're okay when their parents seem okay, especially when they're really young and innocent. Isn't that how we're supposed to feed off of Jesus? I think another example, just, just recently, this trip to India, I mean, just riding the roads over there is taking your life into your hands, right? I mean, there are cars just going everywhere. But I've found that I am actually kind of enjoy it and I'm fine with it as long as my driver seems okay. If he doesn't look scared out of his mind then I just assume he knows what he's doing, that he wouldn't be in this position if he thought it was going to cost him his life. And so as long as he's okay, I'm okay. I feed off of my driver in a scenario that I would otherwise assume was going to cost me my life. I think as believers who belong, who have been purchased by a Savior who is just waiting for his enemies to be rounded up and put into his ottoman, to to, to draw... Our sense of security from a Savior who feels that way about the future is to find a source of absolute deliverance from the fear and anxiety that otherwise hold us in chains. Here's the point, guys, and we close with this. We don't know what the the future holds, and yes, evil continues to be strong, natural evil and moral evil, and it's out of our control. But Jesus isn't worried. And if we're identified with him, then what's true of him is true of us. And his battle's over. So we trust him. Father, help us because that is not what comes natural to us. We we are so prone to forgetting your love and your care. We want to live in light of the truth of what Jesus has done once and for all. We want that identity that's set in stone that is, that is unconquerable by the powers of this world to be our identity. We want to live from that place. But it is so hard for us to do that because we love control and we want credit for our success and we want to be in control of our future. What we need is the power of your Spirit to change us so that we live as those whose hearts belong to a Savior who is seated once and for all and merely waiting for his enemies to come to heal. Give us this grace to believe, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.